0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Mentium Matters podcast, where we talk about leadership, life, and the transformative power of mentoring. This is Solveig Brown, and today our conversation is going to focus on race, diversity, equity, and inclusion in corporate America. My guest is Dr. Delroy Birch. Dr. Birch has a broad multi industry background in all aspects of operations, strategy, transformation, operational excellence, business development, and business consulting. He is currently the director of Corporate Enterprise Strategy for JM Family Enterprises, and he is also the chairman of the board for a nonprofit that does global outreach. Dr. Birch has a PhD in organization and management and is an adjunct professor at DeVry University where he teaches business, technology, supply chain and operations management courses. He has been a mentor for Mentium since 2010, and he is the co-author of Return on Mentoring, Developing Leaders and Advancing Diversity and Inclusion Within the Organization. Welcome, Dell. I am so glad to have you as a guest today.
1: Thank you for having me, Sylvia. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, well, Del,
0: this past year has drawn attention to systemic racism and glaring inequities for people of color in all facets of American life. Corporations are under pressure to take a stand on racism and address the inequity within their organizations. Um, You have a PhD in organizational management, and um, can you talk more about why corporations are addressing race inequity in a different way than they have in the past?
1: past? Uh, yeah. Uh, so there's there's a number of uh, elements of why it's being addressed um, now so differently than it has in the past, and you know I want to take some time and, and unpack each of those uh, a bit more. And you know one of the things that made DE and I so prevalent across all spectrums was what occurred in 2020. Now. Companies and corporations have uh, actively been participating in in diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. Um, But because of the awareness through the George Floyd uh, protest, and during the pandemic, we had nothing else to watch. And it just became so much of a movement across the United States and globally in some parts of Europe, that the focus on the uh, inequity in certain aspects of, um, for minorities, if you will, that became an area of focus for corporations because, with the uh, advent of cancel culture driving how corporations respond to the things that matter most to their consumer base, um, they had no choice but to accelerate a focus on DEI. Now, the other thing too is that um, as the generations of uh, the workforce gets younger and younger, it is more of a diverse representation, not just at the um, frontline uh, level where you have more diversity typically, but throughout the organization. So not only are organizations accelerating and magnifying the focus on DE&I, they're also being uh, more judicious in how they look at the disparity of inequity and diversity and inclusion at all levels of the organization, including the top levels of an organization.
0: Right, yeah, so it's kind of that, that pressure, the, the pressure from people. You know, of saying this has yes. got to change. Um, you know, the financial pressure that if if customers see that you're not being part of this solution, that they will take their business elsewhere. Would Would you say that's fair too?
1: Yes, that, that's fair, especially when uh, you have a business that works in the direct to consumer space, where you're dealing directly with the consumer. Where it becomes a bit more tricky is in the business to business environment, where you're not um, being exposed to the direct consumer. Uh, In those cases, depending on uh, the relationships you have and the representation that you have at the uh, account executive, client executive level, that may drive the focus for more uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, between companies. But there's still a long way to go. But uh, what I've seen is that uh, corporations are actively doing it. The challenge becomes uh, not only are they doing it, but how sustainable will it be beyond uh, beyond the issue being prevalent to the consumer base.
0: Right. So the report being black and corporate America speaks to exactly what you just said. It indicates that there is a lot of work to be done to close gap, gaps in leadership, reduce racism and create workforce environments where employees feel empowered. So the statistics are that currently only 3.2% of executives and senior level managers are African-American and only 1% of fortune 500 companies have have an African-American CEO. 65% of African-American employees feel that it is harder for them to advance. Can you talk about some of the barriers to advancement that African-American employees and other professionals of color face?
1: Absolutely, and it's it's a, it's a topic, vague uh, so that is very near and dear to my heart because I am black. Um, and I have had to face um, most, if not all of the challenges throughout my career. Um, the unfortunate thing is that uh, not everyone is intending on, you know, making it difficult for me being black. It's just that there are just unaware issues and sometimes unconscious biases, even conscious biases, that have presented that. Now, as a African-American uh, leader and a professional, a lot of the things that I've had to face is really where I started. Um, so the there's a high population of African Americans who are not, um, privileged or have the benefit of starting in a place where they were given the advantages of knowing how to navigate the professional environment. So you're pretty much learning on the job. You try certain things. It doesn't work. You try again. And then you hit the glass ceiling where there is a ambiguous nature of what do I do to become successful? So I start mirroring what I see, which may not necessarily position me in the, in the best light. So it's almost like starting a race where you are ahead of me four laps in the relay and we're running at the same speed. It's very difficult for me to ever catch up to you, right? That's that's contextually the nature of it. The other aspects are that because the power of um, the ability to make decisions, hire, fire, promote lies within the majority of the uh, white American um, environment And with the lack of representation for African-Americans it's very difficult to have representative leadership as an African-American bringing awareness to the fact that it doesn't matter what school you come from, it really matters are you able to do the job, right? So naturally I've seen across all the companies I've worked with, I'm not pointing out any specific company but of all the companies I've worked with and I've worked with many companies globally, there is a tendency to hire like me. A person who has the skill sets I have, a person who I'm comfortable with, a person who is malleable and coachable, a person who I could trust, where you know they will have my best interests. And that's natural for, from a human nature. However, what that does is it limits the focus on the opportunity and the pipeline for minorities, especially in African Americans, to be sourced from some of the second and third tier schools. For example, I rarely see uh recruitment coming from HBCUs or say the local community college where a person didn't have a good start in life and they had to get a job coming out of high school to support their family and eventually having to go back to school in their late twenties or thirties. So they're coming in as an adult and may not have the credentials up front. Now that's from a sourcing standpoint, from an introduction into the workforce within the workforce, there are very little mentoring programs that allow minorities, especially African-Americans to have awareness of all the opportunities that exist. I've yet to be at a company where a high potential list doesn't exist. There's always a high potential list. And the challenge is leaders know there's a list. Everybody else don't know there's a list. The criteria to get on the list, it's usually hidden. And the goalpost moves where the criteria shifts. And it's about you know, how you portray yourself like ability as opposed to how do I even get into the list to be coached to be a potential future leader of the organization. And unless you build relationships with the people who know these things, it's very difficult for you to be able to know how to navigate. Now, as a minority in um, in the working environment in corporate America, I've been fortunate where I've always had a person that is of uh, not Black actually put their arms around me and say, hey, you got what it takes. Let me teach you something. So I've been fortunate, and I've been fortunate in my career to be able to navigate um the corporate environment which is why i'm passionate about giving back but the thing that i've noticed is unless from a minority status unless you have those relationships or culturally if you're not taught to just go out and build those relationships because typically folks from other race are folks who've done bad things to you so there's a lack of trust the conflict and the conundrum is just the cultural norms are bumping up against the corporate norms and they're diametrically opposed, which causes this internal friction that, you know, it's very difficult to articulate in words, but I know it exists. And that in itself creates this uh, this paradox for minorities where trying to navigate among all the barriers to promotability and success in the workplace, it exists uh, even more so um, at the senior leader level.
0: Right. Yeah, that's a lot. Like, so kind of lack of transparency, lack of recruiting from the get go. Um, and then once you're in the workforce, some of the, the the unconscious bias, how that plays out, you know, and sometimes direct racism. Um, I've interviewed people that talk about, you know, the exhaustion of code switching of how, you know, figuring out how to navigate like what you're talking about, that cultural shift, between you know, within the organization. Um, and then, you know, like not having senior leaders that look like you. Or to having, or not maybe having people that will advocate for you. Um, So, in lines with what you're saying, like a recent McKinsey report notes that even if a company is achieving a diverse workforce, um, many have failed to cultivate work environments which effectively promote inclusive leadership and accountability among managers, equality and fairness of opportunity, and openness and freedom from bias and discrimination with so many companies pledging to enhance dei efforts right now what do you think is the best approach to creating diversity equity and inclusion programs that are effective
1: yeah so this is uh, this is a dicey one because and I, the reason i say it's dicey uh it's because depending on the recipient of the benefits of this the, those programs the outcome may be uh different and you know i'm not talking about the goal of the program but the outcome right and you know, there's a couple different buckets and I'll I'll speak generically, not specifically. There's a bucket of, Hey, I'm looking for promotability. I'm looking for equity in voice and authority and decision-making. I want the ability to have the same amount of earning potential uh, over time or whatever those, those categories are. Right. So depending on how the recipients from a diversity standpoint, uh, look at the programs, the outcome may be different. However, what's the norm and what's consistent and a non-negotiable at any level is the ability for any organization to have representative-based leadership driving and influencing these programs and what i mean by that is that many cases because there's a lack of diversity at the top it is non-diverse leaders making decisions for the eni programs how would a non-diverse leader know what it means to be black what it means to be Asian. They've never walked a mile in those shoes. So everything they're doing is an assumptive based decision, which in itself is dangerous because that's the inherent nature of why there's a lack of DEI um, from an equity standpoint, inclusive standpoint, and um, a diverse standpoint in the workforce, right? Because they are natural unconscious bias. Now, minorities also have unconscious biases. However, um, You know, having representative-based leadership, and one of the things I challenge—I've challenged almost every company I've been to with my leadership—is unless I see someone that looks like me in senior leadership, then any decision being made is going to be missing some core elements of what matters to me and people that look like me. Or a challenge I would ask to leadership is when you guys look around the room in your in your weekly leadership meetings, how many people look like me in the room? Because if there's zero then every decision they're making is not representing what matters most to me or is even representative of a cultural equity, a diverse perspective from me. And, you know, one of the things that I've noticed, uh, Solvig, is that, you know, as corporations establish the uh, de programs, the conundrum that sets in is that if they put in a, a role of the program, the natural tendency is to put a person of a diverse background in that role. Well, that also limits that person in that role to move anywhere else because they're now driving a sensitive topic that most people are uncomfortable talking about. However, I, I do believe there's a couple of evolutions where um, you know, having true representative based leadership drive these programs or sponsor certain elements of the program will help everything from sourcing new talent, refreshing new talent, whether it's seasoned uh, professionals coming in in the new hire process, and also developing an in-house talent through a succession pipeline where we have, uh, we being, you know, the population of any company, have uh, leaders represented at al- almost every facet within the organization. And I'm not just talking Black, I'm talking Asian, I'm talking uh, all, all elements of Asian, Indian, uh, you know, East Asian, you have females, uh, LBGTQ just all aspects of diversity represented within an organization. But it it starts with representative leadership rather than that assumptive-based leadership decision.
0: Right. And I've read lots of places, too, that the business case for having diverse senior leadership is really strong, that companies should really aspire to that because it kind of makes a, a good, it's good business sense as well.
1: Absolutely, especially even whether it's uh, business-to-business, business-to-consumer, direct-to-consumer, um, the population that of consumers or the sample set of consumers that will be consuming the product or service um, more than likely will be representative of a diverse background or depending on where the company is located, the environment, the social environment that the physical location is may in a diverse environment so it just it makes sense to not only source from that area but also grow the talent within that area to give back that um, that economic stimulus to keep the money being spent in that local area.
0: Right? Yeah, those are really, really great points. Um, You talked about mentoring before and you participated in Mentium's Momentum program in 2008. And then you started being a mentor in 2010 and have mentored so many people since then. So can you talk a little bit about the impact that participating in the Mentium program had on you? And then also um, talk about the experience of being able to give back as a mentor?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, and you know, public. This may sound like a public service announcement for for Mentium, but I, I truly mean it. I, I bleed Mentium through and through. Um, you know, when I when I participated as a mentee in uh, the uh, Momentum program with Mentium back in two thousand and eight, uh, one of the things that was very very refreshing for me was, as a young professional that was considered a high potential at the time in my Corporation that I was at, the one thing that uh, I was unable to put my thumb on was almost everything I just described, right? The ability to know there's something else I need to be doing. There is um, some things I'm bumping up against, but I can't describe it. And I feel like I'm an island because every time I look around the room, I'm the only Black person there. I'm the youngest person in the room. I'm competent. I'm, uh, you know, I am. I am relevant, um, but because of my background and my age at the time, I may not have been credible with the level of experience, right? And one of the things that Mentium uh, allowed me to do was one, be part of a community that um, I felt like I belonged because, uh, you know, it was an in-person program where when I got around other professionals in the program, one, they looked like me, they spoke like me, same experiences, same backgrounds and i was able to exhale where when we communicated with each other in the program even if i wasn't clear in articulating what i was looking for they felt the same way and it was just a sense of community the other thing that was impactful was the mentors at the time that were supporting the program and the mentor i had um, his ability to be bold brave and have the courageous conversation because he was a white uh, guy in in leadership and he was he was comfortable and courageous enough to even challenge some of the things I was, I was asking and, and allowed me to articulate them in a way where I was able to spot some of the hidden um, gems in how to navigate my career. In addition to some of the blind spots, I didn't realize was so, in, I knew I had them. Um, some I, I knew I didn't realize I had, but the ones I knew I had, I didn't realize how impactful they were in, in a disadvantaged manner because when I got into a situation where I didn't feel like I was being treated fairly, those blind spots magnified in a way that projected a different Dell, if you will. Um, so from a mentor, mentee standpoint, um, just being part of the community and a lot uh, having, having Mentium package a program in a manner where the program itself put into action and into content what I was not able to articulate and what I was seeking. So hopefully that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, from a mentor standpoint, in the last going on eleven years now since I've been mentoring, one of the things that um, that really stands out to me is the bidirectional learning. Right, so every time I get with a mentee, there's you know I go in with open, you know, just an open heart, just to be able to learn about that person. In addition to being able to understand what got them to where they are, and having walked a mile in those shoes, being in the program. I could just see it in the first conversation with the mentee. They're searching. What they're searching for, they may know exactly what they're searching for, but most of the times, it is beyond what their words could articulate. And and what I mean by that, so big, is that many times as professionals, we look around the organization that we're in, and we look at what, quote, unquote, success is based on who has success. So naturally, right, kind of the way our brains work, we we short circuit the process to come to the conclusion. If that person is successful in that role, I need to mirror myself after that person, that set of behaviors. Now, that may be relevant today or yesterday, but it may not be relevant tomorrow. So, being able to work with the mentee to articulate really what are their outcomes based on the personal vision, mission, goals that they have is one of the most important things. And and I've shared this before. Every time I connect with a mentee, that person has had a life before they cross paths with me. So being able to understand what that person went through allows me to really cater how I engage with them to either extract what they're looking for, maximize the momentum, no pun intended, of where they're trying to go, and also just build that collaborative, cohesive relationship where I get a chance to learn about them. And it's the fastest way for me to learn about their industry without having to spend the 20 years they have, right? So, you know, it benefits me at the same time.
0: Right. Definitely a win-win situation. Um, So, Del, I want to talk about your dissertation a little bit because I... Thought your topic was so interesting. You asked this question: Is there a positive relationship between one or more leadership traits and the ability of middle managers to successfully manage their workforce in times of change? So, what did you find? Are there leadership traits that help leaders successfully manage change?
1: Yeah. Um, so, you know, my, you know, pursuing my PhD was a personal goal. And, you know, when I started my dissertation, my my goal was to prove myself wrong. And what I mean by that is I had this innate sense that there's a specific approach to engage with people, to get them to, you know, collaborate and really concentrate on a shared vision mission to maximize the outcome of an organization. I'll tell you what that is in just a second. But so I went in there to, to prove myself wrong. And. Um, you know, the outcome, I I failed at proving myself wrong because the very thing I thought was the outcome turned out to be the outcome. And what I mean by that, when I looked at all the different types of leadership approaches to managing people and employees and associates in uh, times of uncertainty and change, one of the things that I, I looked at was, okay, what are all the different known leadership approaches? And then I narrowed it down to what would be the most relevant ones in times of uncertainty and change. And at the time, I was working in the airlines, the aviation industry. Um, Also, the financial industry was uh, not doing so well. And uh, a lot of the transportation and health and regulatory aspects of, of those industries were hidden. So there was a lot of uncertainty and change in the U.S. and across the world. And I boiled it down to four leadership traits. One was the trait theory of leadership, where you look at What are the traits within leaders today that the company needs to replicate? Two was leader-member exchange theory, which was based on how a leader and employees engage with each other. And then uh, you typically find uh, uh, um, create in-groups and out-groups. And we all experience it in the workforce. There are groups that we know of the in-group, that if you belong to that group or that family, you typically have a nice path. To success and if you're on the outside everybody's trying to fight to get on the inside so that they could be part of that success track right um then there was transformational leadership and the reason i focused on transformational leadership was because at the time um daniel goldman's book on transformational leadership and the the growth of eq and ei was really spawning so at the time everyone was talking about okay all these soft skills needed by leadership right so emotional intelligence all that stuff and then situational leadership which was ken Blanchard's old theory on situational leadership and the different four quadrants of that. One of the things I did was I really spoke to, I, I went out and interviewed a lot of the frontline middle and middle managers in the aviation space. And because at the time, it was just a lot of pressure it was right after 9-11 and all the stuff that came with that. And w- one of the things that um, I learned, Sylvig, was the most impactful leadership was not that transformational leadership because transformational leadership gets you to a point in time from uh, transferable skills or a transformation in the organization. The most impactful was situational leadership. And the reason I distinguished the two is because transformational leadership or emotional intelligence is one of about seven to nine multiple intelligences that was coined by Howard Gardner back in the 1970s and um you know unless we really maximize everyone's multiple intelligences because we all have them some we have better than others the only way to do that is through situational leadership where we meet and lead people where they are we cannot expect to hold them to where i am as a leader because i may have had more experiences in them i may have had more exposure in breadth and depth than they have i have to meet them where they are. And, and some of the things that became evident was not just leading people where they are, but leading them and not just pushing them, but pulling them up to a point where they get exposed and it's up to them to choose whether or not they want to continue that learning. So some of the things around effective listening that mobilize action, right? So there's a difference between effective listening versus active listening versus just listening, right? It's the one of the most, uh, the, the most needed competencies in corporations, but it's the least develop and train competency in organization is effective listening. Uh, So um, that's a bit of a summary about uh, the dissertation.
0: Yeah, that is so interesting. I like hearing about all those different leadership styles and effective listening. So would, you know, effective listening means that you can really, that you're actually just really listening and can understand what people are saying. And then is active listening where you kind of talk back, like mirror back what they said?
1: Yeah, so effective listening is, is uh, you know, the world according to the gospel of Dell. It's me just, you know, mobilizing active listening. In other words, you know, active listening obviously is engaging with the other person that you're talking to to make sure that you're validating what you're hearing and you guys come to a common level of understanding. Effective listening is taking that active listening and help mobilizing it, or at least helping whoever is communicating with you understand what options they have to go execute at what they want um, as it pertains to either a leadership, a leader, employee associate engagement or a mentor mentee engagement. Um, you know, so so it's really, it's really effectively listening for the things that are being implied but not said.
0: Right. And it sounds like you use that strategy when you are a mentor for someone. You use that situational leadership of meeting where they're at. You use the effective listing to really hear where they are and then figuring out the action. So could you give me an example of what that looks like, of how situational leadership and effective listing would be used today in relation to corporate DEI initiatives?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, you know, I know that uh, having haven't been part of uh, the enI and i initiatives in multiple companies. Um, you know, w- one of the things that typically happens is, hey, we need to, you know, there's the typical uh, active metric where you say, hey, we need to have more diversity at, at all levels of the organization. So let's pulse the employee base to understand how they feel about diversity in, in inclusion and equity. And depending on the feedback that that um, occurs, the natural tendency may be to focus on uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and in pay inequity, right, and in role inequity, right, uh, position inequity. But true effective listening may be that uh, diverse candidates or diverse professionals may not only want that. That may be just a non-negotiable. But the true ask is I wanna have a seat at the right table and be in the right seat at the right table at the right time where my voice is heard. That may be one of the key outcomes because how many times, and I'm speaking for myself, as a diverse professional growing up in organizations, I'm asked to execute the work and give my opinion when it comes time to execute it. When it comes time to making a decision for the future of the company, I don't have the seat at the table. Someone else is taking my inputs and making the decision and getting the benefits from it. Now, I don't know, I haven't I have yet to met a diverse professional that have not experienced that or cannot relate to that. If there's one out there, please, I'm I'm willing to learn, but I haven't I haven't met one yet.
0: Right. And that is just like a, a gaping hole. You know, of of not of not having that seat at the table to do that. Um, Del, we have time for three final questions. Um, so, do you have habits that you feel have contributed to your success?
1: Absolutely. Um, one of the things that I so the, the two two big habits that I I, I stand on and I I, I still do today. Um, is uh, the one that's a discipline, and, and most people may not want to do this, but uh, the one that's a discipline is I constantly gauge, uh, whichever company whichever company I'm in, uh, I constantly gauge the CEO's pulse, meaning what's important to that CEO, because what's important to that CEO is important to me, not necessarily what's right in w- w- my leadership chain above me, because that's a non-negotiable. I have to do what they want me to do. However, I have to keep pulse on what's important to the CEO. And that may be articulated in the 10K or an AK filing. It may be articulated in the all employee, all associate meetings. It may be articulated in a interview that you hear that CEO speak to some industry source, but I'm constantly keeping pulse of what's important to that CEO because it's something that, um, what's important to that CEO has to be important to me. Um, And and the reason I make that a priority is because it allows me to control the narrative of what I'm hearing. Far too often, if I rely on my leadership chain right above me, I'm getting their perception or their deduction or their interpretation of what they think the CEO is. And, you know, not to speak philosophically, when people start comments with, I think, I feel, I believe versus what I know, there's a Mm -hmm. huge gap. So i rather keep a pulse on what I know is important to the CEO rather than what I think, feel, or believe I'm hearing through my direct leadership chain. That's nothing against my leadership chain, it's just that it's a discipline that I hold for myself. The second one is every morning between 5 and 8 a.m. I watch Squawk Box and CNBC so I could get a pulse on all things in the market. Um, Most people may find that boring, but the more you want, I've been watching it now for 20, 22 years since my youngest daughter was born, right? So my oldest daughter was born 22 years. And the ability to stay relevant on all things business has allowed me to be credible and relevant in every conversation I have, because a lot of the things that are important to my CEO are actually discussed on that program. Every weekday morning, 5 a.m. to 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, Squawk Box on CNBC. So.
0: Wow. Those are great habits. And it's just that continual learning of always yeah. kind of keeping abreast of what's important and what's going on. Um, what would your advice be to up and coming leaders?
1: So my advice would be, um, you know, do the things I just mentioned. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> um,
1: but re- <laughs> So that, that would be, that's the easy answer. But the larger answer is, especially if, you know, for 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 the up and coming leaders from any minority background, diverse background, it's um, regardless of what parameters you grew up with culturally and um, you know from a diverse perspective, I'm not saying to put that to the side, keep that because that's part of who you are and your authentic self, but it's an opportunity for you to step outside of those norms that you grew up with and start actively building relationships with people around the organization. Uh, Far too often, we look at folks that have positional authority and think that's who could make a, a change in our careers, in our opportunities. But a lot of times, there's a lot of people that don't have positional authority, but have influential authority that is a louder voice and more influential on a change. Most of the opportunities I've gotten is because I built a relationship with someone in the workplace that or my peer or right beneath me that have a strong relationship, some family ties or connectivity outside with the CEO or the senior leaders. And all it took was, I really like working with Adele. He made me feel special and his work is top notch. Within a couple of weeks, I have a meeting with a senior leader saying, hey, I heard about what you did for this person. Would like to learn more about your background. Like, and you know, that to me, it it forced me as I was learning that so big to be able to step outside what I knew was, I don't trust that person. I don't trust this group to step outside of that and start actively building relationships. Now, if you're an introvert, that takes a calculated measured and judicial approach. If you're an extrovert, it should be natural. Right. So if you're like me kind of on that borderline, you know, you do it and then you go suck your thumb in the corner afterwards. (laughs) you do it again. Right. So, um, You know, but the biggest advice is actively start building relationships um, within and outside your organization. And the more you make those intent authentic, people want to pour into you and they want to help you rather than the superficial, hey, hit me up on LinkedIn, let's chat. And then they don't hear from you in another four months.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that is great advice. Okay, Dell, final question. Do you have a favorite saying, quote, or motto?
1: Yes, um, I'll say it and then I'll, I'll unpack it. It, is, this, it may sound a bit uh, philosophical. So one of my favorite uh, saying is, without contrast, there's no perspective, right? So h- how would you appreciate having money if you hadn't been poor? How would you appreciate the value of food unless you haven't eaten? And the reason I, I say that a lot is because it allows me to look at how I interact with people. So what comes out of their mouth uh, at the time I interact with them may be a limited perspective because they haven't had contrast. And what I mean by that is, if all you've seen and experienced is what you've actually seen and experienced, how would you know anything different if that's all you've seen and experienced? So unless you have the contrast of a different perspective or different experience, whether seen or actively lived, there is a lack of true perspective. So Um, it allows me to really engage with people from a more compassionate standpoint. So even if some of the things that comes out, the amount may appear a bit um, ignorant, it's like, okay, Mm -hmm. why are they saying that? Did they have the contrast? Oh, they may not have ever been told because no one has been bold enough to tell them, hey, you know what you're saying, you might not want to say that in the the future. And here's why. Um, And in the corporate environment, when things are not favorable, most people just pivot away from it not address it. So um, that's one of my favorite sayings.
0: Oh man, I love that. I'm gonna remember (laughs) that. Dell, thank you so much for being my guest today. I really appreciate your depth of knowledge on race, diversity, equity, inclusion, leadership styles, and mentoring. Um, Thank you so much for your perspective. You have given me so much to think about, and I know that you've given our listeners a lot to think about as well. Thank you all for listening to this Mentium Matters podcast. We have many great guests lined up, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. For additional resources, you can find show notes on the Mentium website. I look forward to having you all back next time.